in Scripture, in Scripture, Simon Peter, we most often call him just, just Peter. He can be the target of punchlines. He, uh, we can give the, these quick little nasty critiques of his life. We might, we might scoff at who he was or a little snort at how ridiculous his behavior is. Uh, if I was Peter, I would never would have said such a thing. <laughs> so, uh, wow, I have no idea what kind of accent that was. Uh, <laughs> It worked. It worked, though. So um, it seems light, though, right? Like, uh, we, we make these little jabs at Peter. It's kind of light. We, we snortle at it. And, and we all chuckle at him. Can you think of any of those jokes about Peter yourself? What has been said about Peter? What kind of caricature we've created of Simon Peter? I made a list. Here they are. Uh, he was a humanized fisherman. Peter rebuked Jesus. What? Who rebukes Jesus? Uh, he was a loudmouth. He was rash. He was hot-headed. He kind of bumbled his way through life, opening his mouth when he shouldn't have. He always had his foot in his mouth. There's old impetuous Peter again. <laughs> and there's the strange accent again. So um, I'm not sure how that's going to come up, but I'll, I'll trust it's divine. All right. So uh, here's my point. Peter is an easy target because of how he's featured in Scripture. He's also an easy target because he's one of us. Don't separate yourself from Peter. How about this? Please don't say this out loud. What jokes do you make about me? That's a rhetorical question. Maybe how I use my hands the same way when I preach. You often see me kind of point up. It's to distract you from me looking down. Maybe you look at the clothes I wear and you make a crack about that. Maybe how I domineer over people. That might be, that might be a staff perspective. Uh, <laughs> that I struggle to admit weakness. That in unhealthy times, vulnerability is my greatest fear. Think about that. I just described Darth Vader. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Think about starting a staff meeting by asking the team for all the inside jokes that point, poke at how I speak, when I open my mouth to speak with the staff, how my face can't hide how I feel. My standard think face is the same my you're crazy face, do it my way face, or I don't understand face. You can see how there's a whole lot of confusion going on. I, my, my face just communicates a lot, and often it's, yeah, I've, I've literally had people say, what is your face saying? And mostly it's just, I'm just thinking. So Peter is like you and me. Don't separate yourself from who he is today. We stumble. We lose our tempers. We have said no to Jesus. We have all fallen. But to... Uh, Make Peter something else. We have not all fallen to the degree that Peter has when he fell at his denial of Jesus. Considering that, remember that Peter walked on water. Peter was a leader among the 12 disciples. I think I'm, I'm kind of tearing up right now because I see hope from myself with how much I uh, open my mouth. Um, the disciples are often titled Peter and those with him. 
That's a description of the disciples, Peter and those with him. Uh, Peter was also part of a, a closer, more intimate circle. That's James, Peter, and John. We'll, we'll hear more about that. Uh, and Peter was with Jesus longer than most. He was the first to be called to follow. With all the life and experiences that, Jesus, that Peter had with Jesus, with all that he might have recounted in his writing, only one historical experience with Jesus is referred to in the letters of Peter. Only one. We read about Peter and James in the Gospels. We see the amazing work of Peter in the book of Acts. We hear more from the Apostle Paul in his letters about Peter. But when it comes to Peter himself, as he reflects on his life and what was given to him, which was then given to us from his pen, there's only one experience with Jesus that Peter references. That's in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. We're, we're laying the foundation. It, it, join me there at this point if you like. Um, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. This is in our, our Bible app as well. Starting at the end of verse 16, Peter writes, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The, the scripture's on the screen as well. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter witnessed firsthand seeing the fullness of Jesus Christ at the transfiguration. The account we'll study today is often referred to as Jesus and the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we don't hear a single word from James. We don't hear a single word from John while they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is really the story of Jesus and Peter on that mount. And if this is the only thing that Peter writes about regarding his experience with Jesus, you have to believe with all that he had seen in his life, with all that he experienced, all the miracles, you have to believe that that moment on the mount was straight up kooky dukes. Let's get to our text for today. We're in a series called Ablaze, Life and Scripture Meet. Our preaching team has been in the Old Testament. They've been in the New Testament, teaching from scriptures that have impacted us in the past or are currently impacting us now. As for myself, I'm Nicholas Todd. I serve on the pastoral team at LEFC, and um, I love the transfiguration of Jesus. It's, uh, it's a favorite text of mine because it catches my attention. Think of, of all the scriptures you might read. The things that catch your attention run with that. We have it in multiple Gospels, and it's just nuts what happens on the mount. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Lord, I come to you in this place with this microphone, asking that you continue to speak through me, that as I have prayed through this text, and I have read a lot about, about the amazing nature of the transfiguration, Lord, and I get to see how Peter responded. Lord, would you, would you speak through to us through these experiences, would you take away the things that say, I am not Peter. I would have never done that. Lord, would you allow us to, to be there in that moment and to know who we really are deep down? And ultimately, Lord, I thank you 
that you, you are the designer of who we are in this life. Through this text, would you mature us? And would you send us out while ready to talk about your amazing glory? In your name I pray. Amen. So Jesus and Peter at the Transfiguration is preceded by some really significant events in ministry that occurs in the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all have the Transfiguration account. And to bring those together, this is what we have preceding the Transfiguration. Here's a little bit of background. One, Jesus with the disciples. This is what's going on. He's with the disciples as witnesses or their participants to all of these things. Uh, they healed people. They fed thousands of people. And not just fed thousands of people. They multiplied the food. Jesus walks on water. I haven't seen that one happen again. Uh, he walks out to his disciples who are struggling to row their boat. And from the water, he, he's walking out into the water. He then steps into the boat to join them. Now, the reason this is important is because evidence has been given this whole team of disciples that Jesus is something else. They already believe that, but the evidence is just astounding. They see that there is a power he uses, he has, or there's something that can make the blind see, that set the possessed free, that he multiplies food, that he defies everything the, the disciples think they know about staying afloat in water. And all three of the Gospels today, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus challenges them with a question. All three of them contain this in these synaptic Gospels. He asks, who do people say I am? That's like a master teacher question. It's so good. What does everybody else say? What, what have you heard about who I am? In a way, and this is what's so master about it, there's, there's, there's no wrong answer. Who, who do the people say I am? He is determining in that moment the disciples' prior engagement with the people around them and what they have experienced with everyone else. He is activating and bringing up something that they already know. It's a, it's a brilliant teaching move to determine their foundation so that he can build on it. And he does build on it because the next question is where he starts to poke just a little bit. Jesus goes from who do people say I am to who do you say I am? And all at once, all the disciples have no voice except for Peter. Peter responds to this pointed and focused question. But interesting, he doesn't rephrase the question and the answer. He doesn't say, we say you are. He simply states, you are the Messiah. The book of Matthew records a moment of blessing from Jesus. Immediately following this, when, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, Jesus gives this blessing he replied, blessed are you, Simon Peter, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let this moment stick with all of you regarding Peter. Christ's identity established his kingdom come, and Peter's identity is established as a foundational leader. Then we get a little bit of foreshadowing. 
Jesus, at the very end of Matthew, speaks to his disciples. He says in verse 28, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. For all of us here, that's something's coming. Something's going to happen. So just then, Jesus takes them up for a hike up a mountain. Jesus, Peter, James, and John. We find ourselves now in Matthew 17, verse 1. Matthew 17, verse 1. We'll spend the rest of our time today looking at verses 1 to 8. That's page 687 of the church Bible, if you raised your hand to get that. It's just a couple clicks in the Bible app. Get there with me. Uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. There we go. And we'll be in Matthew 17, page 687. Follow along with me as I start in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Stop. Right there. So much has already happened. All right, verse 1 establishes the who. So tell me, this is not rhetorical, tell me who is there according to verse 1. All right, so we have Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And there's actually one more clue. This is kind of a trick. This is the trick part. Nobody else. It's very clear here. It's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and nobody else. It says they were by themselves. They didn't travel with anybody else. They didn't see anybody else on the mountain. No shepherds were sleeping up there. A head count of everybody doesn't get too long, doesn't get too complicated. One, two, three, four. Should we start again? One, two, three, four. Great. Easy inventory, right? Do you see anybody else? No, it's just us. So someone else joins the group. You know with a group this small, right? We'll see what happens. This also says where they are. We have the who first, and then we get the where. And where are they? High on a mountain. Just the four of them, high up on a mountaintop. Now, mountaintops aren't the safest places. Um, I was fortunate to live in uh, kind of, I guess, earth version of heaven in Colorado. And... Um, it taught me much about hiking safely, hiking safety as well. You pack water, you check the weather. If you see dark brewing clouds, that, that's bad. And lightning can be a problem. And if you see those last two things, you turn back. It's pretty simple. Now, Peter, James, and John, they had an eye for the weather. Why did they have an eye for the weather? They're fishermen. I talked about this a number of weeks ago as we looked at Jesus calming the storm. They knew when to get in the water and they knew when to stay out of the water. Their livelihood depended on it. So they could read the sky. They're not mountaineers, but they could read the sky. They could read weather. And this is important later. Now, I like saying this. I feel like this comes up over and over and over and over, and over again. Peter, James, and John were also... Jewish. Did you know that? It doesn't say this in these verses, but why might this be important as they go up the mountain? Can you think of any, man, any other Jewish moments that occurred on a high mountain? Here's two, just two. Don't grade me on them. Don't grade me on them. Here it is. Here's two. Exodus 24. 
the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. Then Moses was invited up. Moses receives revelation from God on a mountain, on Mount Sinai. And then Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Just a couple weeks ago, I preached part of the story of Elijah, mostly about his interaction with the prophets of Baal, Ahab, making it rain. And I ended in 1 Kings 19. Elijah's life is threatened, and he gives up. Elijah prays to the Lord. I paraphrase, I can't do this anymore. I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than my people. I'm afraid. I am alone. And God responds, in 1 Kings 19.11, with a lesson for Elijah, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Elijah receives a lesson on the character and being of God in that moment on a mountain. He was on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. So mountain lovers in the crowd, take note. This is the biblical justification you can use for why mountains might be better than beaches for rest and vacation. (laughs) Now, I don't want manipulation to happen, so beach lovers in the crowd, don't let the mountain lovers manipulate you. Because it all belongs to God, use Psalm 29 against them as an object lesson on God's glory. Okay, it talks about the waters and his voice. Mm, Yeah, use it, use it, it's gonna be good. It'll be a good conversation. So let's move on to verse... Two. We've only made it to verse 2. This is so good. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Again, we're stopping. So much has just happened again. He was transfigured before them. And Pastor Ken, as he was talking during the music set, he talked about transfiguration. And what is transfiguration? Man, there is some crazy debate pitting transfiguration against transformation. And there's, it's really interesting to read from my perspective. What I think is really important here is today, not that we define explicitly what is transfiguration and how it might be different from transformation. What we need to understand is that Jesus did not turn into something else. It's always been Jesus. It wasn't like the frog pince where a frog is then turned back into a human. It's not a wizarding tale of a, of a human turning into some other animate or inanimate object. They still knew it was Jesus. When I think of the transfiguration in this context, it is communicating a revelation of the true nature of Jesus. Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And this is a very, very important precursor to what's going to happen on the mountain before going up the mountain. That confession gives space for Jesus to invite them up the mountain to be granted vision for who he fully is. It's like a mask is taken away and no veil is between them. I believe this strongly I believe this strongly connects with the end of Matthew 16. I read it earlier. Here it is again, Matthew 16, 28. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's fine scholarship out there that says this reference is about the return of Christ in Revelation. 
where Christ's full glory is seen. But if his full glory is seen and witnessed here on this mountain right now, then why wouldn't Christ have just a week earlier been referencing this transfiguration moment? And I think that's some of the beautiful mystery of the gospel. That's the beautiful mystery of scripture. I don't know. But we get to dream about it. And times, yeah, Jesus is there. And uh, people are going to witness a whole lot in the end times. There's going to be eyewitness, full revelation in that moment. But the kingdom is now as well. When Jesus showed up, the kingdom of God was in the midst of humankind. It's now and not yet. So, the three disciples, they, they get a revelation of all that Jesus was. Not just bits and pieces, but a full revelation. And this is where it starts to get funny. I'm serious. I, I've laughed about this. I've tried to calm myself knowing what I'm coming in today. But uh, consider this. The job of a writer can be really tough. Words are important. Descriptions are important. How do you transport a reader or a listener in an oral context to that moment so they can, as best as they can, understand what's happening? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I've already said it, all include the transfiguration event in the Gospels. And I imagine that Peter, James, and John were just in total shock about what they had seen, that Jesus was transfigured. They tell the other disciples about it, and they are just overflowing with details about what they saw, what they smelled, the pressure in it. Remember, they're familiar with weather patterns, and also their emotional state as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have to translate those words, those descriptions, into words. So let's start with Matthew. Matthew, upon hearing the reports from Peter, James, and John, writes that Jesus' face shone like the sun. It was intense, and there was like a heat coming from it. It was blinding, but they still wanted to look. And oh man, the sun gives life. We talked about rain today, but the sun, that's where energy comes from. But it's hot. It's real hot. It's too hot. So watch out. Don't touch the face of Jesus. Luke. Luke writes that his clothes become like a flash of lightning. Remember that lightning is a bad thing on a mountaintop. Again, it was intense, and it was like Jesus just, just, just exploded with lightning bolts shooting out of him. So there's a fear because of the sheer volume of light explosion that revealed more about Jesus than they had ever seen. I read in one place that the heat of lightning can be more intense than the sun. What the heck? Matthew just gave us the sun, and now we have lightning. So for their safety, whew, you want to get off that mountain. You, you need some shelter. Mountain peaks are no good. It was dangerously lightning-y. That's a real word I learned. <laughs> and Mark. <laughs> I, feel, I feel really bad for the guy. Um, he writes... His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. <laughs> I feel like Jesus, Mark is saying Jesus was really white. <laughs> Mark must have had sponsors or something, something he had to name drop. This message from Jesus brought to you by Clorox bleach. I mean, poor guy. Now, the best I could think of, just like I say, be careful how you pick on, on Peter, be careful how we pick on Mark as well. So the best I could think of for Mark was maybe Mark knew this would be a home run with the laundromat owners of the world. 
they need Jesus too, you know. So that's Mark. So if Mark's writing about bleach really connects with you and your moment in this moment, uh, in, the, in this time, run with that. Take it, love it. For now, I'm sticking with Matthew and Luke and the exploding, all-consuming, dangerous, but life-giving descriptions. So we have a bursting Jesus, and then we enter verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, remember, we took roll call earlier. How many people were there? Four people. So we have to recognize who came into the scene. They were a party of four. No one else was there. That was clear. One of these four exploded like the sun and lightning and, and bleach. So that leaves three non-exploding people. But then two more show up. I said earlier that with a small group of four people, you notice these changes. Adding two more, you would definitely notice. notice. And these weren't just any two people. Moses and Elijah show up. Sam, I think we have a problem with my microphone. I'm not sure if they heard that. Moses and Elijah show up. Uh, you guys aren't, like, isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that shocking in some way? You guys are way too chill about this. Okay, so uh, let's talk about Moses and Elijah in this moment. So Peter, James, and John, they knew the stories of Moses and Elijah. They were the heroes of their community. They were the heroes of their entire people group. When they were in community with each other, Peter, James, and John, th this is the stories they told. This is of their history of Moses and Elijah, and they were absolutely essential to the people and the Jewish community. Think about it this way. When Peter, James, and John were kids, these were the action figures they had on their dresser. <laughs> I know, it, it's, making, it's making light of it, but we put these heroes up on our dresser, and, and in a way, we worship them. So, superhero fashion states that even the best superhero utility belt will make you look fat. So, unlike Batman on screen there, Moses didn't have that. There, there's an action figure of Moses. Uh, his super tools were a staff and a tablet. And no capes. I think we, no capes. Capes are dangerous, so they stuck with more traditional styles of clothing. I am sure if you look at, at least here, they had some red in there. Red makes it pop. Um, these were the superheroes of their youth that were real, but also impossible at the same time. So when Peter, James, and John, think about this, when they're playing as kids, they boldly spoke to Pharaoh. They, they emancipated their people from Egypt. They fought about whose turn it was to split the sea. It's my turn this time. You did it last time. I want to split the sea. They fought about who got to play Ahab and then get shouted down by Elijah. Who would be the last remaining prophet? Because all the other ones were killed. Who asked the Lord for the rain to return? Who gets to do that? So let me say it again. Moses and Elijah are here. Wow. Right in front of them. How might you feel if you met the hero of your life? You might get a little nervous. 
You might feel a little nervous. I was thinking about this. Mm, this is kind of a sidebar. How on earth did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? I can't imagine they watch YouTube videos of the highlights of splitting the sea. <laughs> I, I digress. But, but they knew. They knew who it was. But now we're getting to Peter. Let's talk about Peter because he finally opens his mouth. He responded to this moment with, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what I will confess about my interpretations of these words from Peter is this. This is, what I, this is not a strike against them. It's normal. But, but you can see it as a strike. He didn't fully understand the moment. That is clear. He did not understand fully the moment. We could make him bumbling and loudmouthed, but I think we can give him a bit more. Here are three interpretations. I think they're all, I think they're all pretty good in no particular order. Here it is. Peter is seeing his child, childhood superheroes of the faith appear before him. He had just seen his rabbi, Jesus, exploding with a power never before witnessed by a single human eye. He is trying to make sense of everything he's seeing. His faith is encouraged. It's enriched. It's also challenged at the same time with the idea of, I just said Jesus was the Messiah, but oh my God. That's a joke. Get it? (laughs) Even though he has already confessed all of this. He still doesn't fully get it. So wanting to prolong this experience, to witness more, to take more in, he offers to build a place for them to dwell. He's got no idea how long this is going to happen, but let's keep it going. He wants to prolong this mountaintop experience. I want to know more. What is it that I'm seeing what can I do? What can I do to keep them, keep them around? He wants to prolong it. Here's the next idea. How in tune to their Jewish heritage and scriptures do you think the disciples were? I would say they were probably pretty aware. Peter was not formally educated like, say, Paul the apostle. However, like most Jewish boys, he would have studied his scriptures from the age of five. He would have known the writings of David in Psalms. So consider Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring to your holy mountain, let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Let me summarize this in a way. Psalm 43 starts by talking about rescue from oppression and the wicked. And a request is made of God that light and faithful care lead them out of this oppression. Now, for the record, other translations of scriptures frequently say light, but they also say truth. Now, the hope here is to be relieved from the oppression, from the wickedness, through the coming of a Messiah. But historically, when the Israelites were oppressed in Egypt, Moses was sent to be that light. And he brought truth 
to Pharaoh. The prophet Malachi writes about the day of the Lord's coming, the end of evil and oppression. In Malachi 4, 5, these words are given. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day. So we have history with Moses. We have a prophecy regarding Elijah's return and also this deep burning hope for the Messiah. Elijah, Moses, the Messiah, all light, truth, and caring for God's people. 43, Psalm 43.3 says, Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Live, have your tabernacle, your tents. So Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are hanging out. Where are they right now? They're on the mountain. Let's put a, let's put a math formula on the, on the board. So Moses plus Elijah plus Jesus plus a mountain plus one more thing equals Psalm 43. What was that last thing needed? I heard it. A dwelling place. If we're going to give this to Peter, that he knew his Psalms, if he knew the prophecies from Malachi, Peter considered this formula in a way and suggested the missing piece. Let's put up some tents. I believe this is a response to Psalms. And last idea, last idea. Lightning, the sun, mountaintops, confessions that Jesus is the Messiah, Moses and Elijah showing up. A lot has happened in the last week for Peter. He is tired from hiking up a mountain. He's emotionally done. He's working to make sense of everything, and he's scared. His suggestion for building a home is self-preservation for him and his friends, James and John. He knows that if everything is adding up as he is seeing it, God's presence is on this mount. He knows that no one could see the unveiled glory of God and live. And he wants to live. He wants his friends to live. And so if he makes three shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the radiance from them would be shielded. And they're protected. Which brings us back to our text. Verse 5 and 6 of Matthew 17. While he, this is Peter, was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. So God provides a cloud to contain the three disciples, to afford them the protection they need. A declaration is made, A voice comes out that elevates Jesus above the heroes of the Jews. And a command is given to listen to him. Moses and Elijah were always elevated. So when they see the three of them, they kind of see them all as, when, when the disciples see the three of them, they see them as equals. But this voice elevates Jesus above it all. And in the cloud of protection, the disciples collapse in fear. They collapse. Verse 7 and 8. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, 
They saw no one except Jesus. Jesus is the only one remaining. Moses and Elijah are no longer there. And he, with a touch, a touch with the same comforting, welcoming, commanding hand that healed the sick, cast out demons, multiplied food, welcomed children into his presence, bring the disciples out of their terror. As if to say, I'm still here. There's more ahead. Get up. Don't be afraid. How often do we hear that? Don't be afraid. When Jesus calms the storm, he asks, why are you afraid? When he's walking on water, he identifies himself and says, don't be afraid. The women at the tomb after his resurrection, fear. Whenever God is revealed, do not be afraid are the first words we hear. What did they see? So I have some questions, some thoughts for your own reflection on this passage. All of these questions are in the Bible app, and they'll stay on the screen for a moment as well. First one, how would you describe God's glory to a Christ follower? Consider the people you would say they're, they're Christians in your life. How would you describe God's glory? What are the things it takes for you to really understand the glory of God. And we talked about the sun, lightning, and bleach. And I picked on Mark just for a little bit on that bleach. But there has to be something. How would you describe God's glory to a Christ follower? And as we consider the other people in our lives, other people in our oikos, how would you describe it to someone who is indifferent to Jesus? Could they hear you marvel at it? Could they hear the mystery of it all? And then as you walk this week, consider this. How has God been revealed in your life? Are your eyes even open to what God's work is doing in your life? Can you identify it? Pray with me. God in heaven, have our eyes been shut to what Peter was doing? Have our eyes been closed to who you fully are? Have we missed your touch and that fear take over? Lord, your glory is hard to put words to. So I ask, Lord, as we charge from our time together today that we might see your glory this week, that we might be able to identify you as creator of life and that which sustains all of life. Would we be able to experience again and again a terrifying splendor of Jesus in the reading of scripture, in the communing with others, and in conversation with you? Lord, would you open our eyes? Could our faith be buoyed just like you did with Peter, Peter James, and John? Amen. Let's continue our time of worship and prayer today.
so we can't stay on the mountain forever. So go now. Speak of what you've seen of God's glory in your life. Identify it this week. Come down the mountain, back to your homes, back to your communities, back to your friends, back to your days. Descend from the mountaintops of revelation to the place of mission. Having seen the glory hidden in plain sight, know that your path with Christ can be a difficult one. But do not forget that this is a path that leads to the undoing of death. May God shine the lights of glory into your hearts. May Christ be with you in thought and deed, and may the Spirit renew the image of God within you. We have people under the cross after our services to pray with you, if you would like that. You can respond with a card that's in your bulletin. It's a gift for us to join you in prayer. For now, turn in a circle. Look in the eyes of the people around you. Welcome them. Pray with them if they need it. Embrace what you have here, right now, in this community, in, the, in this space. And after that, go in peace. We'll see you next week.